there. My name is Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. Now as most people will already know, I'm no freshwater fisherman, though I have dabbled from time to time with coarse species over the years, as well as tackling a wealth of background reading in order to keep up to date with the subject, and as such I feel I have some valid observations to make. Very useful attributes when you're about to interview an angler of the state as the Professor Mark Everard on his particular favourite topic, which is the roach. Rightly or wrongly, one particular impression I've formed over the years is that roach fishing has become something of a purist pursuit. A fish that completely epitomises what coarse fishing is all about in the true Mr Crabtree style. In particular at specimen level, where it has built up something of an understated but very loyal following. So what would your take be on that? Well, my view is that the roach is a fish for everyone. They're extremely widespread. You get them from the duck pond to the canal to the salmon river to the lowland stream. Other than the three-spined stickleback, they are the most widely dispersed coarse fish in the country. And they're accessible to the novice, to the specialist, to the match angler. They're used as bait. They have a history of being eaten when food is scarce. And they're the first fish that many people encounter in their lives. Also, I mean, they are archetypal. They've got obvious scales, uh, lovely symmetry, clearly differentiated fins, beautiful colours. And, yeah, a fish for all people, whether they're obsessed with them or uh, simply spending the time with them. Before we start delving more deeply into the world of the roach, can we first go back to a time when you had yet to discover its attractions? Right back, in fact, to your earliest recollections of and introduction to fish and fishing generally. An introduction destined to have a major influence on what you would ultimately do in your life. Well, my childhood's a bit of a sort of a mess, to be quite honest, but my sanity was always being by water. From the very, very earliest of ages, and I do mean under two, I was down at a dew pond in Kent whenever I could, full of sticklebacks, and we caught them with nets, we caught them with cane and cotton, with worms literally tied to the end, and the, and the sticklebacks, of course, would gorge themselves on the worms, and you'd lift them out of the water. Beautifully red-breasted, emerald green and blue back males in the spawning season. And so many happy memories of that time in the what must have been the late 50s, early 60s. So, yeah, the roach wasn't the first fish, but my first fish on rod and line was the roach. My father was an angler. He um, unfortunately died when I was still a kid, but um, he loved his fishing. He'd uh, take me fishing with him, and we'd spend many a happy hour on the Medway in Kent, sometimes on the ponds in that general area. But, yeah, spending time by the water, discovering the joys of simply being there, looking at the plants, the birds, the rabbits, all of the whole wildlife, the changing seasons, the beautiful seascapes and skyscapes of that part of the world, has stuck with me forever. And my greatest pleasure now is is simply being there. I love to fish, of course, of course I love to fish. But the whole sort of poetry of landscapes, particularly moving water, and seeing life happening, seasons turning, and of course fish within them, and on a good day catching them as well. So really from that point onwards I set my sights on becoming a freshwater scientist, and that's indeed what I dedicated myself to. I went on to do A-level, obviously, first class honours, bachelor degree at Westfield College in the University of London, probably the best freshwater unit in the world. It was shut down, sadly, but not until I'd finished my PhD there. And my PhD was on uh, heavy metal cycling in lake ecosystems. Now, that's significant for a number of reasons, because I'm always interested in whole systems. I'm not interested in breaking things down and studying something in minute isolation, because the whole world that we live in is deeply interactive. Fish happen because ecosystems support their needs for breeding, for reproduction, for evading their predators, evading spates and so forth. And healthy fish populations depend on a healthy environment. And of course, healthy humans or humans with prospects of a decent future 
also depend on a planetary system that isn't broken, which is functioning, which is producing all we need and which we are sharing equitably. So my career, if that's uh, not too grand a term, as a campaigner, government advisor in India, Africa, Australia, America, and odd little islands like this uh, cool, damp one in the North Atlantic, is all about a better world where everything is connected. The way we use resources, the way we treat the environment, the way we treat each other, is all part of getting a system working that is inherently sustainable. Fishing, of course, is part of that, as is my rationale for setting up with a colleague the Bristol Avon Rivers Trust because the river matters a great deal. And despite a raft of legislation, the river really doesn't get regarded as a contiguous whole. And I think we all can contribute to that sort of mission in life. And to further reinforce your growing freshwater fish and fishing commitment, after taking your bachelor's degree, you then progress things on to the next level with a PhD research project, working on, of all places, one of my old regular fishing haunts of Oldswater in the Cumbrian Lake District. Well, initially, my PhD funding was to look at lead uptake by water plants, with the history of mining in Oldswater being a logical backdrop, particularly the lead, although zinc and silver are also significant contaminants there. But, as I said, my interest has always been in the fact that nothing happens in isolation, and so I changed things almost from the off, being uh, inherently uh, obstructive like that, and started to look at the way metals moved through systems. I mean, both physically in terms of the way storms turned over lakes and distributed sediments. Dissolved metals were taken up by plankton, by water plants. The way algae on the surface of plants were accessible to snails. The ways in which and the rates at which snails took them up. The way the metals were transferred into fish and so forth. Looking at the whole cycle. An interesting time. I love my time as a student, I have to say, from undergrad to postgrad. Yeah, I mean, that led on to uh, interesting things. Obviously, I published not just my thesis, but a whole range of scientific papers. But when I completed my PhD, it was at a time when there was massive contraction in the university system, and my intent to be an academic for the rest of my life was pretty much thwarted from day one. So I went on to do a postdoc, postdoctoral research at King's College London in biochemistry, not my native discipline. But, uh, I mean, that went okay, although I did feel a little bit like cookery after the, the real-world science of ecology. And then, really, university prospects were very grim, so I set up a little consultancy at the time just to trade in what I could, which was technical writing, because I always did a lot of scientific writing. And that sort of went okay for a few years, ended up headhunted by IBM, believe it or not, to write some of their computer manuals. I did very well from a career point of view for a few years, but I think it was a threat of promotion that really made me realise that I was, I had drifted too far away from my roots. So I looked for opportunities for massive salary cuts, joined the National Rivers Authority, and there I led research programmes, I ran national water quality planning schemes. It was a research that always interested me, still does. I worked part-time for the success of the Environment Agency. Most of that time these days is working directly for DEFRA, Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs here in the UK, as part of their ecosystems team, because ecosystems are really what fascinates me. And I'm also part-time an Associate Professor of Ecosystem Services at the University of the West of England, promoting research, promoting learning and promoting the wider uptake of ecosystems perspectives across the university. As I've said, I've also set up the Bristol Avon Rivers Trust. I write my books. There are so many things I do in uh, often far too little time. But e ecosystems and, and the wonder of the natural world do sit underneath them all, including the television and the radio work I do. Then, of course, as we all do, you settle into life's routine, with Roach becoming a central part of your available leisure time. So why that particular fascination? As I've said, the roach was the first fish I ever caught on rod and line, and the rod was a gut-busting heavy. Might have been green heart, it was certainly a heavy piece of wood, I know that much, and it was the kind of centipin destined never to become a classic. A gaudy red float, and it was in the Medway, Tunbridge Recreation Ground, freshly cut, 
and there was a, a layer of cut grass on the river. And I remember looking and seeing my gaudy red float and then looking back and not seeing it and lifting out this pulsating bit of silver from the river. So Roach always had that fascination for me. But Big Roach, my book Redfin Diaries, which came out in July, August 2013, really I've charted a lot of my experiences with Big Roach because I have been extraordinarily lucky with Big Roach throughout my life. When I was in the later years at school, as I've said, I I didn't have a particularly happy childhood, so the lake was my playing ground and my refuge. And it happened that this lake, in fact, another pond close by as well, had one of those freak populations of big fish coming through it. And I I learnt my craft, really, with roach and rudd, freelining bread. In fact, writing Redfin Diaries made me wonder why the hell I didn't do that anymore. So I found the spool of line that I bought in 1974, two miles of it. I've not used it all yet. Two pound line, Vaseline greased, put on a very cheap reel and put on the fiberglass rod that I used in the 70s. And this summer I've had quite a number of fish, including four different two pound roach, three from lakes and, and one from the river, as well as chub to 512. Just the simple joy of free line bread. So I recommend that to anybody. So, you know, throughout the 70s, I was picking off the odd roach. Throughout the 80s, I was sort of more into, I suppose, late education, early career, not fishing enough. But by 86, 87, I had tired of London. I'd tired of chasing anything in a career sort of sense. Coincided with this, as I mentioned, headhunt by IBM which gave me the opportunity to move down to the banks of the Hampshire Avon at Downton, where I lived for five years, and again stumbled upon some classic years of roach angling, and did rather well learning how to trot a very big float down a very powerful river, learning to quiver tip, catching them on popped-up crust, all sorts of different methods. And then by 91, that had sort of come to an end, 92, I started a new job with National Rivers Authority, head office Bristol, moved to the Bristol Avon. I live at Great Summerford now. And I enjoyed another fantastic boom of really big roach. I mean, my biggest river roach was a Hampshire Avon fish at £3, 6 ounces and a quarter. But I've had something like nine Bristol Avon, £3 roach, as I speak, including several that have equaled my river record of £3, two. So I've been extraordinarily lucky I've helped my luck a little bit, in fact, quite considerably, by learning a lot of techniques. You know, I've got two-pound roach on the fly and on the pole and on floating crusts and slow-sinking free lines and wagglers and sticks and heavy-trotted loafer and uh, that sort of float. And I do believe that having a broad palette of techniques is what keeps you catching consistently. In your Medal of Press publication, The Complete Book of Roach, you've approached the subject under the three subheadings of roach biology, roach angling and roach in society. So it might perhaps make sense if we break this interview up using those same three subheadings, starting with roach biology. Well, the life cycle of the roach, it follows the seasons, as many of our fish do, something like April into May, depending on the, uh, the kind of season we're having. The roach will head upstream. They'll uh, communally spawn on vegetation, generally vegetation that is reasonably well flushed. They particularly like fontanalis, underwater mosses in mill races and that sort of habitat. But in lakes, they'll spawn on the submerged stems of emergent reeds and that sort of thing. And then the parents display no care for the eggs at all, and those eggs are heavily predated by all sorts of little fish and invertebrates. And some of them make it through and they break out with their yolk sacs still attached and suckers on their heads, they're attached to the vegetation. So this is why good habitat is absolutely essential because if you've got a roach hatched out from a fast race, that little fish needs, both in that suckered stage and when it becomes free swimming after the yolk is eaten, to drift into a fry bay, somewhere that is placid in terms of current, rich in terms of food, providing them with refuges from their predators and strong currents and so forth. So habitat diversity, really important, remains so throughout the life of the fish. Then the fish grows on and grows on, and after three or four years is ready to spawn. Might be the length of your thumb by that stage. But you have to think of the spawning cycle almost as a two-year thing. 
because during the winter that fish needs to lay down a lot of yolk in the eggs for the eggs to have success in the next year. When it's laid that yolk down, the eggs then can produce well-nourished elevins or fry with yolk sacs attached. If you have a bad winter and bad feeding, you've got a strong prejudice against the success of the fish the next year because they just might not grow fast enough or strong enough to form a good year class. A year class is a, a brood year of fish. And then, of course, after the, the winter, you're into the spring, and if you get a, an exceptionally cold or wet or spatey spring, the fish might not spawn effectively, or the fry might be washed out the river in a summer storm, the kind that we're getting more and more often with our seemingly changing climate. So that's uh, more or less their life cycle and their vulnerabilities. Feeding habits of the fish, well, they start with plankton. And that might be small algae, but small animals are pretty important. Rotifers, small water fleas or clodocerans, copepods, that sort of thing. And they eat them uh, as they go. As they get bigger, they'll be sort of 7 or 10 millimetres by the end of the year, something like that. Then they'll graduate onto bigger food. But it's not really until they're about three years old that the growth rate suddenly takes off. And that seems to be almost entirely related to their ability to eat mollusks. And I mean small river clams and snails, which are an important part of a roach's diet, which is not accessible to them when their mouths are too small, self-evidently. So from that point on, the roach does begin to grow rather more strongly and uh, you know a two pound roach is unlikely to be less than eight although exceptionally I've seen them at six and a three pound roach is unlikely to be less than 11 or 12 and the oldest roach I've, I've counted is 15 although friends of mine have counted 17 year old ones but obviously these are the freaks these are the really really big fish. So that informs the way you think about the fishing for them then and presumably also your favorite tactics. For me the the magic and the greatest enjoyment and indeed the fittest fish that come with roach fishing are on rivers. I love to see a float moving down a river or I love to see the way that uh, the bait is bouncing on the bed betrayed by the movements of the float to sort of feel I'm working for those fish. I do still water fish for roach. I'll put wagglers and lift methods into lakes. In fact in Northern Ireland with my friend Keith Berry fishing those huge huge lakes that, that take someone of the calibre of Keith to uh, extract big fish from. I will even bolt rig for them. I mean, keep that quiet, don't tell anyone. But a heavy feeder where the fish will, will hook itself because my first venture there, I think I had one bite in four days and with all the best will in the world, I would not have spotted the float move, particularly since it was minus four and blowing a hoolie at the time. But rivers, I absolutely love. They're archetypal in terms of roach fishing and enjoyment of the whole water side. The favoured habitat of roach does change quite dramatically throughout the fish's life. As I've mentioned, the spawning is favoured in reasonably well oxygenated water on vegetation, where the shoal spawning happens, and then you need these adjacent good nursery habitats, habitats that will warm rapidly in the summer sun, that water can be 10 degrees warmer than the adjacent main river. And that matters in terms of the growth rate of the fish, the abundance of food within it, the ability to escape from other fish and kingfishers and all manner of predators. That's what enables a fish to not only survive, but to grow strong and fit enough to withstand the winter spates, which can take out a huge proportion of the, uh, the fry of the year. As we know, roach tend to favour the deeper waters, although they will come onto the shallows in the summer to feed. Particularly, they'll come out of deep water into the shallower runs at night. You see them priming. The reason a roach primes is to charge its swim bladder with air. It doesn't do it for fun because it exposes itself to predation. So nothing in nature does things strictly for fun in that sense. There has to be some functional reason. And there, once they get on the shallows, the roach feed on a whole smorgasbord of food. As I've mentioned, snails are a particularly important part of the diet, as in fact a pea mussel, small mollusks of all sorts. But they'll eat water shrimps, they'll eat uh, water slaters, they'll eat daphnia, they'll eat vegetable matter, detritus, or in other words, broken down organic matter. And 
the constituent of the diet really ranges with what is available and there's a strong seasonal element to that. So the fish might be strongly insect eating during the summer, which is why often you get a roach that looks like a rud because it's got these brilliant crimson fins and golden flanks. Some people misidentify them as rud. But all that is, is that the roach has been absorbing the carotenoid pigments from invertebrates and uh, they're showing up on the flanks and the fins of the fish. A lot of the big Northern Irish fish look very ruddy for that reason. Firstly, because they're big and very deep keeled like a rud. But secondly, they seem to eat a lot more invertebrate all year from what I've seen. Uh, And roach will eat uh, whatever's there. So plant seeds, as we know from our hemp and tear fishing, Bread, my favourite bait, is effectively really just a glorified grass seed. They'll take corn, they'll take eggs, they'll take whatever. I call them the supreme generalists in uh, the complete book of the roach because in many facets of their lives they are, including their diet. So when roach are young, their shoaling instinct is, I think, the strongest. But as they age, obviously the the number of their peers declines with old age, death, particularly being taken by predators, diseases, that sort of thing. So you can end up with these small shoals of very big fish. Now, in some rivers and lakes, you tend to get mixed-sized shoals. So the next bite could be from a, a tiddler a few inches right the way to a monster three-pounder. But in other rivers, like the top end of the Bristol Avon, where it gets very clear and you in the good old days when they were there, because they're kind of not there anymore, you could see these fish. You'd see the, just these tight little shoals of two or three fish that you knew individually hanging out together. Really interesting. But obviously they're, they're not burning up a lot of energy. They're trying to find places where they're not going to be fighting current the whole time. So the deeper reaches, particularly where there's a bit of shelter from vegetation, such as the cabbages, the, the submerged leaves of the yellow water lily, and their habit changes with season and flow. So in a a low-flow river winter situation, they might just hunker down in a deep spot and not do anything, avoid burning energy, and they become very, very difficult or impossible to catch because they're really not eating. But then you get a good push of water through, and they're, they're kind of having to burn energy and fight the current, and then they become catchable. It's not just about presentation and it's not just about the color of the water they actually do generate a metabolic demand to feed as well so good spatey winter weather is my absolute favorite for large roach so my favorite roach swims do tend to be obviously winter that's when the fish are at their prime i don't do long sessions i do short sessions so uh, my roaching fits my life habit quite well And what I'll do is I'll seek out a deeper backwater, particularly a drop-off in depth. And I do mean a drop-off in depth either in a river or a lake. Because in a river, you'll get the fish on the back of the drop-off where food's coming to it, but it's not burning energy. Often can be on a really spatey-looking bit of river, but if you've got knowledge of the riverbed, you can drop a swim feeder or a heavy float through the current to feel out the slacker water that you just know is there. And then, of course, on the big still waters, the reason I use, when I'm waggler fishing, I use a lift method and a free-falling waggler as a pair, is that my lift method is finding me the drop-off or the edge, and then I cast my free-falling waggler over that. And sometimes all the fish are right on that edge, and you're catching them on the lift method, and sometimes they're slightly up in the water, and you're getting them on the free-falling bait. So, yeah, look for your drop-offs. That is the big, big one with roach. As dusk comes, that's when we're used to seeing the fish prime or come to the surface. Uh, What they're doing is gulping air to charge their swim bladders, as I've described. And the reason they're doing that is that they're changing depths. And they're changing depths to move into shallower water to feed. So they use these drop-offs and and move up out of them when the light goes down and they're less vulnerable to predation. I often get asked to identify difficult fish by various bodies such as the um, Weekly Angling Press and some other organisations, including once or twice by the British Record Fish Committee, particularly hybrids of roach, because roach will, in theory at least, hybridise with all other leuciscine species, or in other words, the dace-like fish within the carp family. That includes roach, rad, bleak, dace, chub, orf, 
and a few others. But the most, I think, commonly mistaken hybrid for a true species is the roach rudd. The differences between the roach and the rudd, as we all know, well, we all know that colour is, but as I've already said with the feeding of the roach, colour is the worst diagnostic feature. I simply never use colour as a diagnostic feature because it's so influenced by environment and by diet. Put a rudd in a white bucket, it turns pretty pale and limp. Put a roach in the dark and, and uh, feed it on invertebrates and it's much more ruddy than a rudd. So what exactly should we be looking for? Okay, so with the rudd, the mouth is distinctly upward pointing. The lower lip extends beyond the upper. With the roach, there's an overbite with the upper lip over the lower. The dorsal fins have different ray and spine counts between roach and rudd, as do the anal fins. There's different scale counts along the lateral line. If you follow the lateral line of the fish and count all the scales, the rudd is longer than the roach. Although there's overlaps in all of these fin ray and uh, lateral line counts. So you need to cross-reference it with other features such as the mouth and such as the orientation of the dorsal to the ventral fins. Now, with the roach, the dorsal is directly above the ventral fins, but not necessarily in by putting a ruler on the fish. What you have to do is count up the scale column and it will be in line, whereas a rudd is set back two or three scale columns. And with good photos, I reckon I can be around about 100% accurate on telling any hybridization, anything that is intermediate between roach and rudd. I know that... Um, you know, visual identification has been slated in the press who sort of says, well, genetic testing is the only way to do it. I disagree completely because the people who can't do it probably aren't looking at the right things. That's certainly been my experience when I've been asked to comment on difficult to identify fish. Also, with genetic analysis, it's expensive. Who pays? Does the average angler know how to take a sample from a fish without damaging the fish? Is there any chance of contamination of that DNA sample? What's your cross-reference here to what is a true roach or a true rudd or, or a hybrid? Because there's huge genetic diversity within species, and that's your reference has always come from a physically identified species. But which particular part of the vast European range of the species is the true one? So, as I say, I think there are problems with genetics. The using taxonomic features is in my view, completely reliable. If you have someone who knows what they're doing, doing the analysis. Can we now move on to the subject of roach angling? With quite literally hundreds of two-pound specimens to your credit from a wide diversity of waters, plus a number of specimens topping three pounds, the best of which I believe tip the scales at three pound eleven ounces, you obviously have this particular subheading well and truly covered. So how, under differing sets of circumstances, do you not only selectively pick out roach, but more to the point, specifically target big roach. As I've mentioned, I've developed a whole smorgasbord of tactics. I've got a broad palette. So if the river is looking, for example, clear and still and slow as it is at the moment, and I know the roach are sort of tucked in some far bank lilies, I might break out the pole, the roach pole, and just put a very fine bait against the stems. Or if the river's howling through, I'll with great joy get out my centre pin and my heavy floats and, and put a, a big piece of bait on the river bed or I'll fish the waggler in the river or in the lake or the lift method or popped up crust. I've recently taken up uh, with great success catching them on uh, on the fly so I might do that. It, it all depends. It's not about the tackle that you use and it's not about just using tactics for the sake of it but it's about thinking through where is the fish What's it feeding on? How's it feeding? And what tactics will let me present that and detect bites? So good old Dick Walker's location, bait and presentation, that holy triad, that is the sole basis I use for selecting tactics and from that, the tackle that I use. But, you know, you do need to understand the biology of the fish. That's why the Complete Book of the Roach starts with fish biology, then moves on to fishing, then moves on to the societal place of the fish because everything stems from the biology of the fish. I've caught two-pound roach from duck ponds, from canals, from salmon rivers to lowland rivers to mighty, mighty Irish lakes, pretty much everything in between. 
part of the reason I do that is because I believe I can and therefore I'll experiment whereas if you don't believe you can you might just go with the flow and not think your way through to where a big fish might be until you've exhausted a fishery you've really no idea what's in it and you know the farm ponds where I've drawn two pound roach from classic case in point I might be the only one that knew they were there and only knew because I was confident in my abilities to search out anything that might be there that's not an arrogance that's just thinking it through as a sort of detective might at a new crime scene big roach in particular well if there's one thing that separates me from a lot of other people it's the fact that i'm absolutely obsessed with using big chunks of bread and that is highly selective but of course if the big roach aren't there you won't catch them so don't be a creature of habit. Don't go to the swim by the car park. Don't go to the beaten down bank because, as I've said in other articles, beaten banks mean beaten fish. The fish know that there is an issue there. So think it through. Where's the cover? Where's the feeding? Where do the big fish feel comfortable? Is there a drop-off in depth? Is a longer walk a good idea? Yes, it is, almost always. Um... How do you sort the wheat from the chaff in terms of bigger and smaller fish and indeed other species? Well, I think you just catch a lot of fish and you enjoy every one. In my 30s, I sort of got into this thing of I had to catch a three and I didn't appreciate a lot of my fishing because I was, well, being sort of alpha male about it. And you look back and you think that was pretty sad and a bit of a waste of my life, which indeed it was. My aspirations just dominated my life and my enjoyment of life right across dimensions of life just sort of paled. So I don't do that anymore. I go fishing. I enjoy what I catch. I use tactics and I fish in places and I use baits that tend to maximise my chances. But I'm happy. I've overjoyed catching gudgeon. I absolutely love gudgeon. And I like small roach and I like dace. And I even like the occasional chub that comes and runs around the swim just disrupting whole shoals and all the rest of it so take the rough with the smooth or the enjoy them all is is the message and that's the best way to learn about location bait and presentation some things work some things don't don't get stuck in habit i'm also very impatient you know i mean this whole thing about anglers being patient is complete rubbish i mean dick walker said it absolutely right that what the angler needs is controlled impatience i am highly impatient and if i'm on a river and not catching then i'm clearly not putting a bait in a place where a feeding fish is so i think through and say well where are those feeding fish are they feeding and if they are where are they likely to be um just keep going and that's going to vary with season obviously in low oxygen stagnant type waters a fish might be looking for where the oxygen is in a river that's coursing through in the winter they're going to be avoiding the current interestingly if you understand groundwater flows in still waters, then you can begin to get an idea where the warmer groundwater is coming into a lake. And uh, I use that very effectively. I mean, one day I had 10 two-pound roach in about an hour and a half. That's my biggest ever two-pound roach bag. But that was just simply by working out where the groundwater flows were coming into a gravel pit and finding that all the big roach were just sat on this ledge. So, you know, a little bit of biology there helps you think through location of fish which will vary massively with season time of day and indeed slightest change in the weather i am not a huge fan of pre-baiting i know that on still waters well i don't really fish long sessions and in still waters you need to bring the fish to you and and have tactics that are suited to that and frankly, that bores me, even if I had time to live my life like that, which frankly I don't. So I don't pre-bait, really, to be quite honest. I do carry tubs of liquidised bread, which I throw in that they'll break up in the water column or put in feeders so they break up on the bottom. So I'll sort of pre-bait for minutes at a time, but um, generally I don't pre-bait. Although one sort of funny story, on a, on a March day, I threw a loaf and a half into a particular hole, came back in the morning and found someone else fishing on it saying, would I witness two two-pound roach? He said, yeah, it looks like someone's been pre-baiting here. So, yep, you got me. So um, at least I photographed the fish that I'd fed. So that was satisfying. But I'm not a great pre-baiter. 
If I fished long stay sessions, I'd recognise the need to bring fish to me. But I'm a hunter by nature. I have short sessions and I'll find those fish. And uh, if I'm not finding them, I'll, I'll keep looking until I either don't or do find them. So little and often is really my uh, loose feeding. If I'm fishing maggots, obviously I'm fishing with loose feeding with maggots. If I'm fishing hemp and tears, I'm throwing hemp in every cast. If I'm sweet corn fishing, likewise. But mainly I'm bread fishing. And in heavy water, that might be mashed bread in water to get it cutting down through the current. But more than likely, it's going to be liquidized bread, which breaks up very nicely. If you squeeze it hard, it breaks up deep in the water. If you compact it loosely, it breaks up as a cloud and falls in the water. So a very adaptable type of food. Tactics, really, I've said all I need to say. Don't get stuck on any one. Everything from the stick float to the pole float to the no float to the fly to the bomb to the feeder to the, you know, the maggot feeder to the bread feeder. Think, think, think first. Think what the fish are doing, how they might be feeding, and only then choose your attack. And that should dictate your tactics. Just don't be tactics or tackle centered. If you are, you're stopping your thinking about what the fish are actually doing. On my centre pins, I'm generally fishing with three-pound line and a two-pound bottom, something like that. Ledges, four-pound maxima, because it's a really tough line, straight through with a two-pound bottom, something like that. Size 12 floats if I'm using bread flake, fine wide camas and B520s are my favourite. For my maggots and my hemp and tear, I'll go down to 18s or 20s, very fine wired hooks. Always use spade hooks because they are much, much lighter than eyed hooks and I reckon that the weight of the bait and the way the bait therefore behaves in the water has a huge bearing on the natural movement of what's on the hook. My floats I use everything from Bolognese's seven swan shot Bolognese's I was using that on the Hampshire Raven on Saturday through to five swan loafers one gram pole floats that I use for trotting from a fine center pin pole floats on the pole rig obviously um, shotting patterns, by and large, if I'm fishing, let's say I'm waggler fishing in a water and I don't know whereabouts in a still water the fish are swimming because they're not necessarily on the bottom, then most of my weight will be up near the float, so the bait is slowly wafting down, exploring all levels. Whereas if I'm fishing a heavily flowing river, I've got bulk shot right down the bottom. I think most people will know I tend to use masonry nails put on the line with rig tubing painted black put on the line with rig tubing so i can slide them that means that the bulk weight cuts right down to the bottom you can hold the float back hard and know that your bait is trundling along in the slower flow near the river bed because in a river you have what's called laminar flow where the middle and the surface of the water is moving much much faster than the bed and the fish will be normally at the bed at that uh, spatey condition of river so you need to hold the float back hard and let the bulk shot hold the bait, let it trickle down. I'll probably have a, a dropper shot about a, a foot or so below the bulk weight. So, yeah, be adaptive to conditions throughout the year, throughout the day, throughout uh, changing weather patterns, throughout light patterns. Vary your techniques and keep thinking. The worst thing that you can do in fishing is to stop thinking. Habit absolutely kills everything. Your third subheading was Roach in Society. So what should we read from that? Well, roach don't exist in isolation, and we're interested in them, uh, so we're part of their non-isolation. Roach have figured throughout history in heraldry and literature and food, in language, sound as a roach is a northern saying. It's actually short for sound as a rock, actually, in all probability. But it's a large section of the book because there's a lot of roach literature, roach poetry, roach short stories, roach contribution to local economics. I mean, the roach fishing on the Hampshire Avon, when there were more roach there, was a really substantial part of the economics of the Hampshire Valley in terms of visiting anglers. I think it would be incomplete to finish a book on roach just thinking about the fish and the fishing without a wider social context. So that's what that's all about. Roach may well be popular, but not as popular as some of the so-called sexier species such as carp and pike. So is the future secure within the UK's aquatic fauna, if not with the wider angling public? Well, roach always used to be 
the top favourite fish up until really the birth of the commercial carp waters. I have always loved them, but my obsession with larger fish did take over when I was younger. I was a barbel nut on the River Lee, and then when I moved to the Hampshire Avon, and in the winter I was I loved my pike and all the rest of it. But roach sort of reclaimed my soul, and uh, really, I, if I had to fish for one species, I'd decline the uh, invitation to uh, answer that question, actually. But they are, without a shadow of a doubt, the sexiest species for me, even, even the small ones. Size is not everything, and we live in a world where big is seen as good for its own sake. I don't get that. I don't see that. Big is sort of relative. You know, a two-pound roach could still be a live bait for a 15-pound pike, so I accept that they're not a big species. Not that I do live bait, of course. But we need to help people fall in love with, A, what is natural and normal, and B, just get out of this whole big for big sake thing because at the end of the day it's it's a fairly destructive practice i mean i do have a particular prejudice against carp that i should make open and that is that i've as an aquatic scientist working in sort of international development i've worked on river systems in five continents that have been completely damaged by takeover by carp carp have been spread around the world because they grow big quickly and i call them in in my book fabulous fishes or fantastic fishes I call them pigs with fins. The reason they're spread all around the world is that they grow quickly and turn whatever they consume into carp protein. And their habits of grubbing up plants and riverbeds mean that they degrade the quality of the water. That has implications for treatment costs, blue-green algae, toxicity to humans and animals. So I'm not a big fan of big, and I'm not a big fan of carp in particular because they're not native to um, anything other than the Black and Aral Sea basins and really should be left there. Pike I have a much softer spot for because they're one of our native species. Knowing your reputation as a course all-rounder, what I'd like to do at this point is widen up the debate a little with a few important, though in no way linked questions regarding species other than roach. You've already mentioned the public's almost exponential obsession with carp. But in your opinion, is that healthy, both for fisheries generally and for fishing as a whole? Well, I've begun to address that already, haven't I? I mean, the carp is here because it grows big, initially because it was a food fish, and then because it's, uh, it, it pulls hard when you sink a hook in it. Carp do change the nature of waters, particularly overstocked waters. So I am against the spread of carp implicitly for the ecological damage they do, for the fact that they damage the quality of the water itself, the, the wider ecosystem and so forth. I really don't want them in any of my waters, although if a carp is there, it will put a bend in my rod when I'm fishing for other stuff. Yeah, there it is. I've said my piece on that. Carp fishing, well, you know, the, the commercialization of fishing has seen this proliferation of holes in the ground overstocked with fish. I think there are real animal health and animal rights issues with some of them, I do have to say, uh, that we should address before other animal rights people realise that this might be the case. I think it's unfortunate that a lot of younger anglers just expect to buy the right kit, fire out a bolt rig and catch big fish. I never really learn the art of angling, the, the subtlety of the different techniques, the appreciation of the different species. The love of simply being by the river as the mists rising off it in the dawn or as the bats come out at night and the moorhen ploughs its way across the river. I think a lot of the magic and the poetry has gone out with the commercialization of angling. And you know, the carp is emblematic of that. It's big. It's relatively easy to catch no matter what people say. And again, it's that big instant gratification culture that the fish symbolizes and um, in many ways represents. I wrote something in Waterlog magazine once called Mac Fishing. I'd initially called it McFisheries, but it was retitled just in case. Uh, the owner of the uh, seafood chain brand got upset about it, which made the point that these days people expect to pay a certain amount of money for a certain amount of kit and, and tactics and to catch a certain amount of fish. And I don't think that's fishing at all. I think that's supermarket thinking. Whereas if I get out later today, which I hope to do with some of my somewhat elderly maggots or somewhat manky bread, 
and uh, just sort of cast it into the Bristol Avon before the light goes. I can't guarantee I'll catch anything. I might get mullered by minnows, or I might have the odd chub. I might even catch a nice big two-pound roach. Who knows? But I love that uncertainty because I'm interacting with, with the environment, with the river, in a way that I cannot really see happening in a commercial still water. Now, I read a report last year suggesting that if you want to catch a British record for most core species of fish these days, or a specimen representative of the record, you now need to fish high-protein baits. It also claimed that as most users of these baits tend to fish them on self-hooking boat rigs, not only was the art of fishing other baits being lost as a result, but also the old and arguably more skillful techniques that went with them, and that as a result, a good proportion of course anglers were developing into unskilled specimen hunters with a high threshold of boredom, willing to wait for as long as it takes just to catch that one special fish. You know, I think a lot of what I've said in response to the last question really agrees with that. It looks like you've been reading, in fact, some of the stuff I've been writing. I think if I was intent on a record roach, which I most certainly am not, what I'd do is I'd go to a heavily fed carp water where the smaller fish were completely neglected. I'd use some crushed up boilies or pellets or whatever was going in there as a barrow load every day and uh, sit and wait for something phenomenal to hook itself. Fortunately, I don't have time to do that, and I certainly don't have the inclination. I suspect the next record would go like that, in all honesty. Because if you're a barbel, say, in a river, and you're scrabbling around with your big whiskers under stones and in the mud to find the odd mayfly larva here or worm there, you're taking in a certain amount of protein, but you stumble across a 12 millimeter pellet, and you've got so much protein and goodness in that, it would take you probably a month, that one mouthful, to forage in the wild. So yeah, fish are getting artificially bigger in a lot of our waters and becoming obsessed with these things. On the Chippenham Club waters one year, I spent a summer trying to catch a fish on something that wasn't a pellet. I mean, a barbel on something that wasn't a pellet. And they really weren't interested. They were so hooked on pellets that um, that's really all that they were taking. And it was it was quite salutary because there were a lot of fish there and you could see them in your swim. So the fish get obsessed. That's not necessarily good for them because a high-protein diet for uh, essentially an omnivorous species can result in ammonia toxicity if the protein breakdown is too rapid for them to excrete. So it's not good for the fish. It's certainly not good for fishing. We are losing the old techniques. I've mentioned the lift method earlier. I've, I've always used the lift method, you know, the overshotted waggler float with the big swan shot on the riverbed so a fish picks up a bait on a short line lifts a shot and the float falls over phenomenally successful sensitive way of fishing particularly in the summer for roach with bread or corn or whatever it might be yet most people these days have forgotten if they ever knew what the lift method is and it's just one example the wallace cast how to use a center pin how to do tricks of the trade that that make a rounded angler able to tackle all sorts of different waters in all sorts of conditions. So you do end up with one-trick ponies, and that's what sells the tackle. The bulk of the tackle trade is, is ledger-type rods, free-running reels, electronic indicators, bivvies, bite alarms, even bivy televisions. I mean, what does that tell you about the state of fishing? That, um, you know, if you've got to watch a telly to keep yourself interested in the fishing, are you really fishing? Okay, that's an old old geezer's uh, prejudicial view maybe but give me every time the broad palette of tactics and the breadth of different types of waters i particularly worry about rivers a lot of clubs here in the west of england are uh, abandoning rivers dropping their leases on rivers because people are wanting to go to still waters and catch a predictable amount of fish in a predictable amount of time on predictable baits as a return on investment in tackle so we're losing a lot of river skills as well what are your feelings with regard to alien species? Not so much fish like pumpkin seed and American catfish, which presumably can't breed and therefore spread here in the UK. I'm thinking more of Xander and Wells catfish, and the impact one has already had and the other might have on the indigenous balance of things. Nature is intelligent. That's one thing a scientist can tell you, or an ecologist can tell you. Nature is honed by billions of years of tight, interdependent evolution. So assemblages of species that occur naturally are not by chance. 
They're closely co-evolved. So I'm, again, the introduction of species beyond the native range. Uh, fortunately, with fish, although it's possibly one of the most mucked about pieces of the British fauna, we now have legislation like ILFA, the Import of Live Fish Act, which implicitly bans the import of species that can form self-sustaining populations. Unfortunately, with horticulture, we have no such thing. So you end up, only end up with plants being banned from sale after they've caused catastrophic results over four or so decades. And I'm thinking of Himalayan balsam, giant hogweed, fallopia, the, uh, the Japanese knotweed, pennywort, hydrocotyle, all of these plants that are causing a huge amount of damage and yet still ever more exotic species and strains appear in garden centres. And, and my missus really won't let me go into them anymore because I just rant all the time about licensed genetic pollution. So any species outside of its native range, away from the checks and balances with which it co-evolved, is a potential problem. We're only just beginning to realise that. Now, the pumpkin seed can breed in these waters, as it happens. In some limited waters, there are self-sustaining populations in Devon, in, in Sussex, a few other places. The American catfish, I've caught them in this country too. They potentially could, so they're on the awful list, although I've no evidence that they have. Xander, well, that's spreading still. They're a handsome fish. I have been Xander fishing, and I have caught Xander. And Xander, of course, caught a lot of the bad press that, that came about from fish declines due to much wider bad environmental practice. So their reputation was somewhat undeserved, but still the same principle applies. If you're bringing in particularly a top-level predator, but any species will do, you're asking for problems, and particularly something like a Wells catfish that can suck down a whole 10-pound carp if it had a mind to. You put them in with huge, huge risk. I'm not sure they do breed in this country. I think really what we're seeing is um, continued introduction, whether it's illegal or not. There's a lot of it goes on. But it's not just the big fish as well. Of course, the, the topmouth gudgeon and the sunbleak are causing major problems where they take over because they can have multiple broods a year. The male protects the eggs. And because of they're so, so prolific, they can stop other fish breeding by eating their eggs, eating their fry. So there's been a number of cases, particularly for topmouth gudgeon, where whole lakes have been poisoned just to get rid of those fish and then put the bigger pre-invasion fish back in. So, um, yeah, as with invasive plants, invasive fish, invasive crayfish species, particularly the signal crayfish, although the Turkish crayfish and several others are a problem as well, the American mink, you name it, there are so many examples of where introducing an alien species has caused problems. We really should be more sensible about it. And I do include there moving species beyond their native range. The barbel, for example, is native pretty much from the Medway up to the River Wharf, so the Humber and the Thames basins, because of the historic land connections. They weren't native to the Wye, to the Hampshire Raven, to the Stour, to the Loon, to these other rivers. And bringing in something that changes the ecosystem is not automatically a good idea. We need to think, 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 rather than just think we need another angling quarry here. What's the consequence for the whole ecosystem? Let's learn from bad practice and bad outcomes for other species. Before we leave the world's catfish, can I ask you for your thoughts on the current situation with the British Record Fish Committee suspending the whales from the list for what they see as artificial factors? Why not then suspend the rainbow trout and cultivated brown trout, which are also grown onto record size for release and almost immediate recapture by an elitist few with either the right money or the right contacts? Well, I think that is the situation, isn't it? We have effectively farmed rainbow and brown trout records and wild brown trout records. I mean, there are some naturalised rainbow trout strains, it seems, on, on various rivers, but... Um, yeah, I mean, the the natural brown trout record is always going to be taken by a ferox from somewhere big and remote, also only accessible by the elitist few who can afford the time and the expense to, to troll for them. The farmed fish, be they, you know, imported catfish or a artificially bred rainbow trout or a brown trout. Yeah, OK, so someone's put a big fish in, it, it's eaten something, it's been used to eating pellets and it sees something that looks like a pellet and it has it and 
some guys called it and got a record. Well, great, you know, it doesn't exactly mean a lot. So I think there are separate records. I, I would just ignore the cultivated fish record. It's, it's shooting fish in a barrel, in my view. Give me the wild waters and the wild fish, and if I never catch a record fish again, I really don't care. I love my dace, I love my roach, I love my gudgeon, I love my wild fish, and they mean more to me than a £30 rainbow, in all honesty. Getting back now to the reason for this interview, the roach, even after all the years you fish for them, they still play a very big part in your thinking, to the extent that you have a new book out on the species for 2013. Can you give us a bit of an advance insight into that? Well, look, I'll tackle the book, and then I'll tackle the broader question of roach. Redfin Diaries is called A Life in the Year of a Roach Angler, the play on words, because it is my life from the 70s through to now, but actually structured around a year, very much around the, the biology of the fish and the way fish become catchable using different methods throughout the year. And I've been lucky, frankly, in catching some immense fish right throughout the calendar year, throughout various stages of my life. And there's a lot of fish porn photos in the book, I can assure you. After writing the complete book of the roach in, let me see, 2006, uh, or publishing it then, obviously wrote it well before, do you need to write another book on the roach if you've written the complete one? Hmm, discuss. The complete book of the roach in many ways is reasonably technical to start with because I'm a scientist and I use my science to, to fish for them and appreciate them. So that, that was the right way to approach it. But Redfin Diaries is very much reflections. There's a lot of learning to be had in it, but I'm not trying to teach. I am reflecting on my Redfin Diaries. That's all I'm doing. And it's been an enriching experience for me in many ways as I reach, well, I'm 55 now. And that's quite a lot of years to have been uh, breathing air on this planet, let alone um, catching specimen roach, because I've been doing that since I was about 12. So, you know, that's, that's a lot of time. I've had 900 and plus uh, two pound roach in that time. So I'm incredibly, incredibly lucky, as I say. And there's great pleasure to be had in reliving some of that and sharing some of the happen chance of how it's happened and, and the tactics and the techniques and things that you might um, learn a, a, something or two from from someone that just happens to have been there before you and uh, had a little bit of luck at the time. So that's Redfin Diaries. I, I really did enjoy writing the book and I hope you'd enjoy reading it because I've just loved doing it. But Roach, yeah, I mean, they are really important to me because they are in many ways like the Marcia of the Indian rivers. I fish for Marcia. I'm active in Marcia conservation. And Marcia are very, very threatened because of major dams, pollution, poisoning, illegal fishing, dynamiting, a whole range of things. And so in many ways, Marcia are the equivalent of the elephant or the giant panda or the tiger in the terrestrial environment, that they're a flagship. If we focus on the tiger or the elephant, as is the case in India, then we automatically begin to take account of connected habitats supporting the different life cycle needs of those mega species. And as Marcia are a migratory fish, if we focus on them in rivers, then we look to connected habitats that they need throughout their lives from the jungle headwaters right to the big lowland basins. But importantly with the Marcia, also the economic context, because visiting European or American or Australian anglers bring a lot of revenue into an area. And so live fish suddenly become a lot more valuable than killing fish for either eating immediately or selling. So the economics of the fish become important for the conservation of the river as a whole. Now, our equivalent in the UK, arguably not that equivalent in many ways, I tend to think of the roach as the Bristol Avon's Marcia. It is a member of the carp family as well, even though it's not a top predator and doesn't migrate huge distances to spawn like the Marcia. And, uh, doesn't fight like a demon either. But in many of our rivers, we're seeing crashing roach populations due to a number of factors, siltation, habitat loss, predation, pollution, and so forth. And so what we need to do is to think of the roach as that flagship species that indicates the overall health of the river system. So more and more in my campaigning and my science and my advocacy work, fish as the flagships, what I call the iconic species of our rivers become more and more important. 
So whether as a scientist, whether as an angler, whether as someone who enjoys them aesthetically or just writes about them all the time, roach will forever swim in my blood and my conscience. And, uh, you know, long may they do so, because if roach is swimming healthy and free and abundant in our rivers, then our rivers are healthy and able to support us into the long-term future. I have to be honest and say that I really hadn't ever considered any single species of freshwater fish in that sort of light before. But yes, you're right. All our native species have become intertwined into a balanced web by evolutionary processes over many millions of years, and it's very easy to see how it might not take that much, be it from alien introductions, pollution, or just plain old apathy, to see that delicate balance destroyed. So as you say, long may the roach thrive both as an angling species and as an indicator that all is well in our rivers and lakes. My thanks then to Mark Everard for putting that case so strongly and for sharing some of his techniques and other thinking with us here. 